You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. We'll be in Genesis chapter 15. So if you want to open your Bibles there, your little journals. We love a good guarantee, right? We love products that say that they have a money back guarantee. We love when people make guarantees to us. And in sports, guarantees kind of get our attention. Back in 1932, Babe Ruth stepped up to the plate. He was one of the greatest home run hitters ever and pointed his bat at center field. And then immediately during that at bat, hit a ball to that exact spot. A guarantee, right? Tim Tebow, back in 2008, after a surprising loss to Ole Miss, he and the Florida Gators, he made a, had a, an iconic press conference where he said he was going to push the team like he had never pushed them before. And you would never see a team work that hard. And they went undefeated and won the national championship. Muhammad Ali in 1965, um, a boxing rematch with Sonny Liston guaranteed that he'd beat him. And in the second, I think it was the second round, knocked him out. And then Joe Namath, the famous guarantee in Super Bowl III where the Jets overcame the Colts. He guaranteed a victory. We love a guarantee. We love a money-back guarantee. We live in a world where we're making guarantees and promises all the time. Every time you buy some gummy worms at the convenience store, you've got to sign your receipt, right? That you are making a guarantee that I will pay this. We love a good guarantee. And today we're going to look at where God makes a guarantee. 
he assures himself, and the name of our text today, or the title of our message today, is the God who puts himself on the hook. The God who assures by himself the covenant that he will make with Abram. We've been journeying through Genesis uh, over the course of this year, and just trying to get a sense. Genesis means beginning. It sets the framework for everything, who God is, what he's like, what humanity is like, what went wrong, and how God is going to put it all together. And we've been zeroing in on this character of Abraham, this real historical figure that was chosen by God in his late years at age 75, received a calling from God to be the promised one, the promise bearer, the one that the seed of promise, the snake crusher would come through. And God in chapter 12 said that he would gather all the nations that he has spread. He would gather them and he would bless them through the seed and offspring of Abram. And it's really remarkable because Abram is not a worshiper of God prior to this moment, but God appears to him, calls him and says, go to a land that I have given you and I will give you children. And he and Sarah don't have children. They've never been able to have children. And so this is a miraculous work by a strange God. And somehow Abram just goes, he goes and he follows this God. And we read the story that Abram's faith gets a little wobbly at times. He gives his wife away, which is a bad idea to the Egyptian king, but God gives his wife back, his wife Sarai back, and his faith is wobbly and back and forth. And then we see that he chases down these kings. In chapter 13, chapter 14, he rescues his nephew Lot, chases down these big, powerful, epic kings that had kidnapped his nephew and their family and all their possessions. And with 318 men, Abram, this man of faith, chases them down, reclaims his, his nephew and comes back. And in chapter 14, meets a couple of interesting characters, meets Melchizedek, who is a godly priest that is a prefiguring of Jesus Christ himself. And Abram worships God together with Melchizedek and gives him a tenth of all that he has. And then the king of Sodom tries to manipulate him and gain him under control, and he doesn't do that. And so if you think about going into chapter 15, Abram has got to be exhausted. He is probably in his 80s at least, maybe 90, and he has just chased down kings, right? And, he is just, and he's concerned that they might come back and avenge avenge um, him they might they might come back so you can just imagine that this old man who just did this massive act of faith this massive rescue plan of lot is coming back home and he's settling back in and he's got to just be completely exhausted and so God appears to him to encourage him in chapter 15 verse 1 God encourages him and speaks with him and there's this intimate moment between God and Abram that is just absolutely massive for the rest of the Bible Chapter 12, he gives him this promise that you're going, to have a ch you're going to have a son, your name's going to be great, you're going to have a nation, and you're going to have uh, this promised land. And here in chapter 15, he's going to expand, and he's going to uh, guarantee this promise with a couple of ceremonies and symbols. He's going to expand a little bit more this promise that he has given to him. Uh, one commentator named Walter Brueggemann says, Genesis 15 asks the question of whether Abram can in fact trust God. And it asks if Yahweh, God, can in fact be trusted. Those are the two main questions in the text. Is, does Abram trust God? And is God worthy of being trusted? What guarantees do we have that God can be trusted, that he would come through? And that's ultimately going to be the questions I want you to ask, is do you trust in the God of Abraham? And is the God of Abraham trustworthy? 
That's the two questions that are going to shape this chapter and really the rest of the Bible. Is do you trust this God and is this God trustworthy? What guarantees do we have that this God can be trusted? So in this text, in this chapter, we've got two cycles, two three-part cycles. The cycle goes like this. God initiates, gives words to Abram. Then Abram questions those words. And then God assures him. So we're going to see that happen two times in this text. Where God comes, he initiates something with him. Abram then responds with questions. And then God assures him, answers his questions and gives him an assurance. We're going to see that cycle happen once. With sons guaranteed like uncountable stars, that's going to be the point. Is that he's going to guarantee that... Abram will indeed have sons that are uncountable like the stars in verses 1 through 5. In verses 7 through 21, you will have a land that is going to be assured by covenant ceremony. And at the very center, between these two cycles of interaction between Abram and God, is this one small little verse where it talks about righteousness credited by faith alone, which is going to be probably the most important verse in the Old Old Testament. So there we go. Two cycles, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 7 through 21, held together by Abram's ultimate response in verse 6. So let's walk through cycle number 1. Sons guaranteed like uncountable stars. Here we go. So here we go. In verse 1, God initiates. And remember, Abram is exhausted. He is exhausted. He's fearful. Um, he's got this great victory, but it's also like, man, how long is this going to last? How long am I going to have to wait? And here's what God's gracious initiative with him is. Verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And look at the words he starts with. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What kind words? Abram, Abram, I know you're tired. There's a lot on your mind. This has been a long run so far. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God comes and he offers himself to Abram. I myself will be your reward. A sweet, unprompted, unconditional encouragement to Abram. And Abram, I think probably in his exhaustion, asks this question. What will you give me? Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You can hear sort of the desperation. God, you made a promise to me. And I appreciate all the stuff. I appreciate you bailing me out of the whole giving Sarai away to the king of Egypt. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving me victory in battle. But I want a child. You promised a son, and you haven't given that yet. So he questions God, Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? And maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe having children has been difficult for you. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you have a child that you're estranged with. So this pain of going, God, you promised this and I haven't received it yet. So he's questioning God. I think in his desperation, in his weariness, he goes to God with this, you could maybe even put it as a complaint. God, the best I've got is Eliezer of Damascus. I've got one of my slaves, maybe that he's acquired in battle, going, man, he's the closest thing I've got. 
He's the closest thing I've got. He's going to get this whole thing. And I've moved my whole life. I've been walking with you. I've tried to walk with you and you haven't kept your promise yet. You've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Honest questions about why God is taking so long. God, I want your promise. I want your promise. And God then responds with some assurance. Takes him on a stargazing expedition. Wake up, Abram. We're going to have a late night. I've got something I need you to do. So he doesn't bash Abram for asking the question. I think the question is actually motivated by faith. He's trusting God. God, you made a promise. I would like to see the promise, right? So this is an act of faith. This is not a questioning or a doubting of God in a way that's, that God criticizes at all. He's taking his questions to God, which is always the right thing to do. That's what Job does. That's what David does in the Psalms. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane takes a question to God. Let, you know, why have you forsaken me, he says on the cross. So there, there is a right place for some questions and some pleading with God. So God assures him by taking him out, stargazing expedition, come on out. Bring your, your pillow, bring your, you know, bring your, uh, what am I trying to think through? Bring out your recliner, whatever it is that Abram, uh, we're going to look at some stars for tonight. He says in verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. My promise is not going to go through Eleazar. He's not the one I'm talking about. Your own son shall be your heir. One from your own body. Verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. I'll wait. Right? Number the stars, Abram. If you are able to number them, give it a good go. And he said, So shall your offspring be. God gives him this assurance. You see the stars, Abram? This promise, you haven't seen it yet. You're having to wait for it. But it's as sure as the stars. The number is going to be as great as these stars. I'm good for it. I'm on the hook for this. Abram gives, or God gives Abram a concrete, tangible, experiential taste of the realness and the certainty of the abstract, invisible potential that God has assured him. It's as real as those stars, Abram. My promises are as good as those stars. You don't see it yet, you don't feel it yet, you're weary, you're tired. You're waiting, but it's as good and as real as these, sun, as these stars. We see that the signs always come as a confirmation of the word. The signs never replace the word of God. The signs always come as a confirmation of God's word. And we get that in the church, right? The preaching of God's word is central. Things like baptism and the Lord's Supper confirm and affirm the signs, the symbols, the tangible stuff is not a replacement, but a confirmation of the word. So you'll see that all throughout scripture, that the signs and wonders and miracles are always to confirm what God has already said. The symbol and the vision are simply to confirm, not replace or supersede the word. This is a kindness of God to give him some assurance. You have questions, Abram, and just know that my promises are as good as those stars. So we get to verse 6. And here's the central point of the whole message. We're going to unpack this a little bit as we get through cycle two. We're going to come back to this because this theme is huge throughout scripture. Verse six, and he, meaning Abram, believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
whenever you see Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps, it's Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's his personal name. It's not just generic God, it's Lord. It's God's personal name. And he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right standing before God because Abram looked at the stars and went, okay, I'm in. I believe you. I believe your word. All of the verses about Abram's life, and this is the most important one, verse 6. This is what defines Abram, is that he's a man of faith. He's a friend of God. He walks with him. This is the most important thing about Abram, is this verse. He believed Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abram do to get righteousness? Nothing. Just believed the promise of God. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is the most important verse in the Old Testament. He believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Simply belief alone in the promises guaranteed by God brings about it righteousness, right standing irrevocably, totally before God. Righteousness before God. This is the beginning of the doctrine of justification, which will be unpacked in Galatians 3, Romans 4, and several other places in the New Testament. This one verse. So it's not his faith that saves him, but it's the object of his faith. One illustration is that faith is not the drink that satisfies us. Faith is the straw by which the drink is transported. It's God. It's God who justifies. It's God who makes righteous. It's God who forgives. It's God who saves. It's God who redeems. And faith is just how we receive the promises of God, how we trust in it. So it's not faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith. Faith is just how it's taken hold of. And he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He just gets right standing before God, not because of anything he's done, but because he believes the promise of God. So that gets us to cycle number two. I love this section. This is one of my favorite sections. This chapter and this section right here is part of why I wanted to do the Genesis series. So again, we're gonna see cycle number two. God initiates, Abram questions, and God assures with an action. So first, God initiates, verse seven. He said to him, I am Yahweh, the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans and to give you this land to possess. So he's reaffirming the promise he made in Genesis chapter 12. He already has reaffirmed, done the star thing on the sun part. Now, I also want you to know that you're going to have this land. So God just reaffirms, the promise. Notice that everything starts with who God is, right? You notice that in both of them? That God comes with himself. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you a land that you possess. In verse one, I fear not, Abram, I am your shield. God is giving himself to Abram. The promise rides on nothing in Abram, but everything in God. A recounting of who God is and what he has done is the foundation for everything. It's the foundation of Abram's life. And then Abram questions. He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know, God, that I can trust you in this? And we've already gotten verse 6 that he says, that it already says that he believes God, but that doesn't mean all the questions have gone away. Questions are not antithetical to faith. There is a faithful questioning, and that's what's happening here. This is not a contradiction with verse 6, not at all. He is directing his questions Godward as an act of faith. Two great filled questions. What will you give and how can I know? Right? Isn't that 
probably the questions we're all asking. That's probably at the heart of Christianity. God, what, what will you give to the one who trusts in you? And then how can we know? How can we know? So Abraham asks, how shall I know that I am to possess it? And then God assures him by cutting a covenant. That's literally the Hebrew word is cutting a covenant, making an agreement. And it's a crazy agreement. He says to him, he says to Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. <laughs> Get me a little mini farm going here, right? And he brought him all these, uh, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. They're little. If you cut them in half, there's just not much left, right? And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, so this seems really weird to us because we don't understand this whole system. Okay, I think there's a picture. I think this is from Abram's Instagram, actually. Well, it couldn't be because he's up there, so he must have somebody else. God took this. I don't know. So, so this is an ancient custom. Abram immediately knows what God's going for when God says, get me the animals. He immediately knows, because this is a common uh, ceremony that's usually between kings. One king conquers another king, and that king's going to remain in power, but he's going to be under the rule of another king. Uh, so the conquering king and the ruling king would then make an agreement. You pay me taxes, I'll give you protection, right? Let's, let's cut a covenant together. And the way it is, is you would take these animals, because this is an expensive thing, you take these animals, and the idea of them being three years old is just to say fully grown. This is when they're at their peak value. So this is expensive. The most fruitful, full-grown animal, we're going to kill those animals to make this agreement, to show that it's expensive. This contract is important. And what would happen is that you would walk through the trough where, you know, the, the blood kind of comes down. And so you've got this trough of blood and you would walk through it together. The two parties would walk through it together. And it's really a curse covenant. Basically, it's saying, I give you permission to do this to me if I break my end of the deal. If I break my end of the deal, you can cut me in half and spill my blood. So this is, this is a little more than signing your mortgage papers, right? This is, this is big. It's expensive because these animals are precious. And you put them together and you walk through and it's like the kings are agreeing that if I don't pay taxes, you have license, you have my permission to come kill me. And if I don't give you the protection, you walk through it together. You walk through it together saying... I commit myself that if I swear on my own life that if I don't keep my end of the deal, this curse should be upon me. So Abram does the work. This must have taken some time because I'm not sure it's easy to cut these animals in half. He's an old man. So this probably took a little bit of time. And Abram knows exactly what God's going for. So, God, so Abram sets it up and then he starts to, he starts to really freak out. Well, actually, before I get to that, just a little more on this covenant. Jeremiah 34, 18 actually speaks of this covenant. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So we have this covenant, you know, like if you, if you make the agreement to walk through, get your feet bloody, walk through these things, you are committing yourself that if you don't hold up your end of the deal, then you should be put to death. So a valley of death is made, a way of blood is created, and each party that passes through the parts is putting themselves, their own life, on the hook. 
And so we see a pattern beginning to take shape in the scriptures. So when God took Adam and Eve and sent them out of the garden, he killed some animals and covered them in, in, um, in skins, right? Then, a little bit later, when Noah comes out of the ark and God makes a covenant with them, Abraham, or, uh, Noah kills some animals and has a sacrifice. So we're starting to get this pattern developing in Genesis that the need for the shedding of blood for there to be right relationship with God. This idea of a covering, this idea of a atonement, the curse being dealt with so that the blessings may come. So we're getting this pattern coming up that there needs to be a death, there needs to be a shedding of blood, there needs to be this innocence that bears the weight of the guilty. And this pattern continues and God says, bring me some animals, cut them in half. You want to know that I am going, I am good, I am good for my promises. You want to know if I'm trustworthy, Abram? Bring the animals. We are going to make a covenant. And these birds of prey start coming on the carcasses. Some have wondered if there's some symbolism behind that. I think it's just Abram had to wait a bit in order to protect the integrity of the sacrifice. He had to guard it. He had to protect it. He had to wait for God to figure out what God was going to do with this, right? He had to wait for God's response. Some have said that maybe this birds of prey represents the fact that there is going to be evil nations that are going to threaten the promise of God. Maybe this is a bit of a metaphor for, for Abram's own life, that he, in some sense, is poured out as a sacrifice before God, but there's going to be so many temptations that are going to come in his life to try to rob from his dedication to God. I'm not sure. But certainly those birds of prey coming and trying to disrupt the sacrifice is, in some sense, a picture of what the, 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 the promise and the threats that are going to come for God's promises are going to be all throughout the rest of the story. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he was just with God the night before, probably, looking at the stars, right? So he's waited all day. He's made preparations all day, just waiting for what God wants to do. He understands what God has asked for, but he's waiting. He's waiting to see what God wants to do with this covenant. And behold, a dreadful and dark, dark, uh, great darkness fell upon him. So just think about this. I think Abram at this point is thinking, oh my gosh, I am about to enter into a curse covenant with the God of everything. And I think he's probably thinking through his life, probably thinking through his mistakes, probably thinking through all the ways that he's failed and going, there is no way that I can enter into a covenant with Almighty God. That's my guess. The scripture doesn't say that, but this deep and dreadful darkness, I think is him realizing I can't walk through the pieces. There is no way I can keep my end of the deal. Whatever it is God is wanting to make a covenant with me, I'm not going to be able to keep it. I am a dead man to stand before a holy God and make a covenant with him. There's no way. There's no way. And he's terrified. Like maybe he'd asked one too many questions, right? Maybe I just shouldn't have brought it up, right? He believes God, but he goes, I'm going to enter into a covenant with God and I know I can't keep it. I'm a dead man. Emotionally exhausted, waiting, huge anxiety, tons of questions, about to enter a binding life and death covenant with the almighty creator of everything. And he knows he can't live up to it. His life has already proven to be too wobbly. He's too inconsistent. He's too fearful. He's impatient. He's self-centered. To have any shot at actually being able to live up to a covenant with God. 
He deserves to be put to death for his sin. He's going to break the covenant. He knows it. He knows that he's not going to be able to keep up his end of the deal. And then verse 13. Finally, all this work, all this dread, God says this, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Know for certain. Don't doubt, Abram. Like, I want you to be so sure of this, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. Look at the detail of this. Your offspring, which we just got done dealing with a few minutes ago, right? The night before, we dealt with that, the stars thing. You believe me, you're righteous. Okay, you got all that. Remember that? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Well, this is really getting specific. But I will bring judgment on that nation and they that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. <laughs> That's just downloading a whole lot of information at once. Know for certain, Abram, that this is how it's going to go. Let me just tell you how the next 400 years are going to go. So your Abram, not going to come into this land. That's towards the end. You're going to die at a good old age with not a piece of property to your name in terms of the land. You're not getting any of the land yet, but your offspring, they will have to go into Egypt for a while. They're going to be slaves, but then I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them here. And then I'm going to give them the land because I have patience for the Amorites here. I'm going to give them time to repent. They're not going to repent. And so then I'm going to bring your offspring in here as a judgment on them. And the promise will come in 400 ish years. Oh, okay. That's the plan. Okay. It's, a, it's really a specific promise. It really just talks about the first few chapters of Exodus that are coming. And I love this. The know for certain. Don't ever, ever forget this moment, Abram. Burn it into your memory. Burn it into your heart. Burn it into your soul. We're playing the long game. This is a long plan, and it's a specific plan, it, but it's a certain plan. I am willing to be held accountable for it in just this way. He perfectly predicts the Exodus perfectly predicts the conquest of the land but it's kind of not great news right <laughs> your kids are going to be slaves for a while and uh, the promise isn't going to come all the way to fruition until 400 years from now and then you'll get the possessions in the land God is just never in a hurry is he he's just never in a hurry it's frustrating but it's sure and we see another pattern begin to emerge in the scriptures which is suffering and then glory that's the way of walking with God, suffering and then glory. Look in the Bible at how much waiting there is for the people of God. How much waiting there is. And that's true for us too. So much waiting in the Bible. And God says, yeah, sign, you're, you're signing up for 400 years of waiting before this promise is going to come to its full fruition. Suffering and then glory begins to be the pattern. We see that over and over again, that that is how God is going to lead his people. Not glory now, glory later. You trust me now through suffering, through difficulty, through challenge, through doubts, through questions, and then glory. You, Abram, there's nothing for you except a peaceful death at an old age. And then God has patience for the Amorites, but they're going to waste it. You see that in verse 16. I'm going to give them time. I'm going to give them time but eventually the time is going to be up and I'll just tell you, I know what's going to happen. I see the end from the beginning 
and uh, they will be judged for their sin. Look at verse 17. I love this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed through the two pieces, or passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, cut a covenant, literally, is what it means, because you cut the animals, cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God goes ahead and gives specifics. You're going to get from this border to this border. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Ten. Ten nations. Ten. This number of perfection, meaning you're going to get the whole land. You're going to get the whole thing. You're going to conquer all of them from this river to this river. The whole promised land is going to be yours. And I am assuring it with my own presence. And the smoking pot and this fiery torch are symbols of God's presence. The pot with this column of smoke coming out of it, this torch with a pillar of fire over it. And if you think about the original audience for just a moment, the original audience, when Moses is writing this to the people who have just been brought out of Exodus, they've just heard their story that God predicted to Abram. And then what they're seeing is they're seeing that the God who led them out of Egypt, the God who destroyed the gods of the Egyptians, who split the sea and brought them out, the God who is smoke and fire on the top of Mount Sinai, they, we can't even draw near, who is leading us by pillar of fire and pillar of, by, day, or by night and pillar of smoke by night, he's the same God who walks through the pieces. And it's almost like God's two legs walking through this pot with this column is almost like his leg, this column of smoke out of the burning pot and this column of fire off of the torch pass through the pieces as if God himself is walking through the pieces saying, may I, the God of the universe, be the one who's cursed if I don't keep my promise to you. The God who rules and reigns and defeats all the other gods is also the God who says, I swear on myself that I will keep my promise to you. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Cut me in half. God says, I swear to God, I will do this for you. Know this, Abram, know this. Exodus 13 tells us this. When, a, when Pharaoh let the people go, so just fast forward 400 years, all these things that God has said has come true. Exodus 13, Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, just as God promised, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones with you from there. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham to the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to, lead, to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And the people who are experiencing this and then getting the book of Genesis and going, oh, that God walked through the pieces for us. That God sweared by himself 
that we would get this land, that we would be delivered, that we would get the promise. And notice who doesn't walk through. Abram. Abram, I am going to be responsible for both sides of the covenant. If I don't keep my end of it, then may I die. And if you don't keep the end of it, I will come die for you. God himself takes responsibility for both the divine and the human sides of the contract, which is a clear picture of what? 2,000 years later. Christ, the God-man, who will in himself fulfill the covenant. This Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of covenants. To the original audience, the God who leads you out of Egypt with conquering force is the God who put himself on the hook to do it. The God who thunders from Mount Sinai is the God who walked through blood for you. You are the one. You are to follow the one as he walks, pillar by day, pillar by night, as he walks you through the wilderness. Follow him because he's the God who puts himself on the hook for you. You are to follow the one who walked through the valley of death for you the one who led you through the Red Sea, the one who hid you behind the blood of the lamb as his judgment fell on all the others. He assures you, he swears by himself to bring blessing to you. And the question is, will you believe and be made righteous? And will you follow him? Remember those questions we started at the beginning. Will Abram believe God and is God worth believing in? And to us, what could be more vivid and dramatic and more persuasive and compelling than this experience of splitting the animals and God walking through? Well, of course, the picture becomes real, doesn't it? Is that Jesus becomes the lamb. On the cross, it's his flesh that is torn. It is him that won't just walk through the blood of animals symbolically, but will himself come and have his blood shed actually. He will come. For God to put on full human flesh and be torn in the place of sinners, to reconcile both God and man, to prove that God will keep his covenant. And where man has failed, Jesus will take the penalty so that we just believe and we're righteous. We just believe and we're righteous. This covenant that God makes in Genesis 15 shapes the rest of the Bible and is the foundation of the gospel. Look at Romans 4. Paul preaches a sermon on this. In fact, actually, this text here, and particularly Genesis 15, 6, is preached on eight occasions in the New Testament. So your New Testament loves this picture. This is the covenant that sets the framework for the gospel. Eight occasions, Zechariah in Luke 1, Jesus in John 8, Peter and John in Acts 3, Stephen in Acts 7, Paul in Romans 4, Paul again in Galatians 3, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, and James in James chapter 2 and 3 are preaching this text as the foundation of the gospel. This is why Abraham is our father. Let me just give you an example, Romans 4, 20 through 25. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. I think this is on the screen. But he grew strong in his faith, speaking of Abram, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, look at this, but the words it was counted to him were not written for him, for his sake, 
but for ours also. Genesis 15, 6 is for you. God put that in the Bible 4,000 plus years ago so that you would read it and you would know that you can be saved by the God who makes promises. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification he was the one that was split in two for us because we didn't keep covenant but it's okay believe him and you get the benefits of the covenant what the father did symbolically in the Old Testament Jesus did literally in the New Testament the way Abram responded to the promise is how we respond to the fulfillment grace alone faith alone in Christ alone according to the scriptures alone for the glory of God alone so let me just give you some applications and we'll be done just a few we could think of many more maybe at lunch you can think of a few more God cannot give you anything greater than himself that's the offer that God makes to Abram right I am your shield I am your great reward what about a son okay I will fulfill my promise to you. But these stars, they're going to be your, you know. And then he tells him again in verse 7, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Ur, offering himself. And then swears by himself in a covenant ceremony. May I die if either of us breaks this covenant. And then he will. He gives himself. The good news of Genesis 15 is ultimately realized in Jesus Christ, who is given for you. God gives himself to you. The Father gives himself as your Father. The Son gives himself as your sin-bearer and Savior. And the Holy Spirit is given to you for your holiness. God gives him his whole self to you. The whole Trinity is given and offered to you in the Gospel. God offers himself to Abram apart from works. Nothing Abram has done to earn this, just offered to him by grace. And we have the same thing. In fact, even greater, we have the entire Trinity offered to us in the gospel. God cannot give you anything greater than himself. Can you think of anything that God could give that would be greater than giving himself? He's the greatest thing in the world. That would be the greatest gift in the world. Number two. Questions are not the antithesis of faith. So bring them to God himself. I find that very comforting in this passage is that Abram just keeps firing off questions, right? How do I know? What will you give me? And yet he's considered a man of faith. So, and like I said before, Job has questions. David has questions. Jeremiah has questions. Isaiah has questions. The Bible is filled with questions. And that's not antithesis to faith. I love what Ligon Duncan says. He says, when Jesus in Luke 22, 20 says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which has overtones. Back to Genesis 15, this covenant in blood. Jesus is not just saying this to say that he's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 21 in the new covenant. Jesus is saying, my friends, long ago, God the Father 
God my father said to your father Abram, I promise unto death, I am here to pay the price. Not only that you may redeemed from your sins, but that you could know that there is no power in all the universe that can prevent your receiving the blessings of God that he has promised to you because I have sealed these promises with my blood. When Abram had his doubts and wanted assurance from God, God said, all right, let's sign a contract and settle this. Look to what I've done. Look to the blood. Now, Abram's going to screw it up. He's going to fall into sexual sin in the very next chapter, but that doesn't nullify at all the fact he is credited by righteousness and that God is going to hold up this end of the deal. Number three, right standing before God has always been by faith alone in him and his works and his promises. So this idea that the Old Testament, you're saved by law and works, is blown out of the water. Ceremonies, religion, according to Genesis 15, 6, the plan has always been God makes promises, God takes the initiative, and those that respond in faith plus nothing get everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything, any law-keeping, any religious whatever, is nothing. And then lastly, the cross of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and guarantee of all the promises of God. Scriptures, New Testament says that. You can come to God today like Abraham, asking him, what will you give me? And he will answer, I give you myself. And you can ask him, how will I know? And he would say, look at my cross. Who hangs there? Who's covered in blood for you? The slaughtered sacrifice of the covenant that we might be assured of God's promises of God is right before you in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God says, I'm putting myself on the hook here for you. Will you believe me and receive righteousness? Hebrews 10, let me close with this. Love this. So now with that picture in your mind of who God is, what he offers in the gospel, this picture of the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament of cutting a covenant, Hebrews 10, look at this, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is his flesh, he was torn open, that we might have access to the promises of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the response. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, just like Abram. Just like Abram. Believe, just believe. With full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Then there's another let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I love this next phrase. Because you're so faithful. Does it say that? Because you have walked so godly. No. Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. It's not that you're faithful, it's that he's faithful. He's the one that keeps the covenant. He's the one that walks through on your behalf. He's the one that holds up the end of the deal. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Because if this is the God we're serving, let's go all out for him. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He was split for us. He walked the way of blood for us. He went through the valley of the shadow of death for us. Therefore, we fear no evil. And we draw near in full assurance of faith because he is faithful. And he puts himself on the hook 
and we're as sure, as surely as God himself exists, we are secure in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the glorious promises that you have made to the world. Abram didn't deserve any of this. Abram responded with questions, and yet you were so gracious to continue to care for him and to love him, and he had to wait so long even to see this ceremony take place, and he's going to have to wait so much longer to receive a son, and then later on you're going to ask him to 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 get rid of his son, and so he has so much of the journey left, and yet you are so secure, you are so sure, and Lord, I pray that you also, or that we also would be like Abram um, in that sense of trusting you. God, thank you for being the God who makes promises to undeserving sinners and for taking up the responsibility to hold up both ends of the deal. God, thank you that by faith in Jesus Christ, both the divine side of the covenant and the human side is satisfied and we just get the reward. And so God, I pray that my friends here would would come to embrace that either for the first time, to receive righteousness by faith in the promise and offer of the gospel. And God, maybe for those of us that have Uh, embraced it for some time, may it take on new life and be more brilliant and beautiful and compelling than ever before. Thank you for being a God who's worked out a long plan to save us. And thank you for your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.